The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. This summer, click into cordless power with Memorial Day savings at the Home Depot. Tackle more than half an acre of grass with the convenience and gas-like power of the Ryobi 40-volt battery-powered mower. And keep your flower beds looking fresh with the 40-volt cordless string trimmer. Then clear leaves and debris with the 40-volt leaf blower. No cords, no gas, no hassle. Click into Memorial Day savings happening now at the Home Depot and on homedepot.com. How doers get more done. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Hello. Hello. Good morning. Hey. Good morning. Good afternoon. It's 12.02. Here, where are you guys? We are in Portland, Oregon. Oh, my God. You got up early. (laughs) We did, just for you. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't know you were that far west. <laughs> it's okay. We're used to it. We uh, we actually have phone conversations with people all over the place. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Well, so I we, appreciate you, you doing this early to uh, for my sake yeah. and for your sake. Yeah. Oh, well, Mark, uh, I am Steve, by the way. Nice the to o- meet you, Steve. The other gentleman would be Joe. Hey, that's me. Joe. Okay. Devin. I'm Devin. Hi. Hey, Devin. How you doing? Yeah. And, and by the way, can you hear us okay? I can. Can you hear me? Yes. yes. Yeah. Uh, righty. Well, no, should yeah. we uh, should we talk about some Atlantis today? Yeah. Do you yeah. want to talk about Atlantis? Uh, by the way, uh, before we get into the whole thing, uh, you're you're about to head off to Alaska to research your. Next I am. Did I you am. Want to talk about that at all? Sure. Sure. Um, you know, you know, people uh, who don't know um, my other work, they see I've written a book about Atlantis, and you tend to get categorized. Yeah. As one of the, as one of those guys who's you know got got an Atlantis hypothesis that he's hawking, and they're all guys with the exception of maybe like Madame Blavatsky, and you know they're they're surprised to hear that you know this is actually just one sort of thing that I do. Um, I wrote a book about Machu Picchu in Peru a few uh, years ago. I heard about that. And, yeah, and um, you know I sort of retraced the expedition from 1911. Um, on which a fellow named Hiram Bingham um, rediscovered Machu Picchu almost accidentally. 
And this new book in Alaska is a little bit more like that. It's um, retracing an expedition from 1899 where the uh, railroad tycoon um, E.H. Harriman, who has just uh, sort of uh, done an aggressive takeover of the Union Pacific Railroad, uh, his doctor tells him, you know, you're going to have a heart attack if you don't go on vacation for the summer. So Harriman, being the type of person he is, decides he's going to sort of outfit a, a, a boat into a luxury yacht and take two dozen of America's smartest scientists, environmentalists, artists, etc., and bring them on this boat, and they're all going to go off together and explore this unknown coast of the territory of Alaska, which is still, you know, pretty pretty much terra incognita at that point. Sounds like um, a good idea. And it is, and, and it's what's interesting is it's, you know, it's like the height of the gold rush, uh, we're switching from like the Yukon Gold Rush to the Nome Gold Rush, and one of the people on the boat is John Muir, who at that point has just written the two or three articles that are sort of like the cornerstone of American conservation. Um, and he has, you know, just founded the Sierra Club, and and the sort of clash of personalities between Harriman and Muir at this exact moment in. Alaskan history, which sort of parallels Alaska right now. I don't know how much you've been keeping track of, like, you know, the, the oil problems they're having in Alaska. Um, but I was up there talking to the state economist about three, four weeks ago up in Anchorage. And I was like, how bad is it? And he said, Alaska gets 90% of its income directly or indirectly from oil. We have a $6.5 billion budget. And we have a $4.5 billion deficit in that budget. Yeah. <laughs> now, I've, I've heard the oil fields out there have been dropping in their production. And uh, so the days and it's when, just, the, days and the, the price of oil Alaskan is... had no taxes and also got a check in the mail from oil is it's kind of over, I heard. Well, that's that's what they're worried about. They, they're they like, you know, they get this thing. It's, what, it's called the permanent fund. And you get a dividend every year. I think last year it was $2,000 for every man, woman, and child in Alaska. So on top of not having any sales tax, not having any state income tax they expect money back every year yeah um, and now one of the big fights they're having is you know how much of that can we cut without you know getting voted out of office exactly. so you know so it's an interesting time up in alaska and it'll be an interesting trip um you know once you if you follow the coast of alaska from like the southernmost point of the panhandle out to the end of the aleutians i actually have a map in my office from national geographic it's it's almost like driving from jacksonville to kansas city down to phoenix and then up to san francisco (laughs) yeah it's it's a big place it's a really long trip yeah and then to go to nome would be you know which i'm also going to do it maybe even siberia uh would be like you know uh, i don't know going to jackson hole or something um so it's a huge place yeah yeah it's amazing I, I need to get up there one of these days. I, I've been to a lot of exotic places, but I've never, to my shame, been to Alaska. And it's not that far away, really, from where no, I live. No, no, no. You guys could get there in a few hours. And it is breathtaking beautiful. I had never been there either. And I was just like, wow. Yeah. This is amazing. Well, it's unfortunate. I, I know I mentioned to you in that email that you should go check out the uh, the story of Albert Johnson, the Mad Trapper. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that might be subject for a later book or something like that. Yeah, definitely. It looks like a great story. Oh, it's an um, amazing like a, story. Just, and the guy was kind of superhuman. I mean, he was—he had a personality disorder, obviously, but uh, he did some amazing stuff. 
Yeah, yeah. No, that's a great story. And those are the kind of stories you guys do so well, you know, the sort of uh, slightly out of the mainstream story that hasn't been told that much. Yeah, um, yeah, the Mad Trapper is kind of an obscure story. I don't know. Totally. It's our bread and butter. Yeah. yeah we, we, we find the weird little stories, yeah. We try to, at we least. We try to, yeah. yeah. Welcome to my world, folks. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and, seriously. I actually, uh, I wanted to first off say uh, you you got off a great little zinger at the, the beginning of chapter 11 in your book. Uh-oh. Uh, where you talk about uh, Maxine Asher. Yes. <laughs> psychic powers to, to find Atlantis. Yes. And I love this. Uh, I'm going to quote your book here. Asher was careful not to overstate the importance of her findings. Quote, this is probably the greatest discovery in world history, course, she told a reporter. <laughs> Uh, and then she goes on to say, like, this will change the fields of archaeology, anthropology, blah, blah, blah. Nah. Yeah. You know, and that's the that's the problem with Atlantis. There are, you know, there are so many people out there making these these outlandish claims for Atlantis based on, you know, next to nothing or absolutely nothing mm-hmm. that, you know, anyone who wants to take it seriously uh, you know, can't even get a foot in the door anywhere. No, I know, uh, I know. It, it, it definitely puts a makes the whole thing kind of a stink, you know. And yeah, uh, yeah. And I, you know, I, I would I'd guess like to, that. Let's say, by the way, I'll, I read your book, and you're not you're not one of those people. You're not a crank. <laughs> Thank you. I yeah, appreciate you, you. You really tell the history of Atlantis, and you talk about a lot of the people who are looking for it. And there are lots of people who are you know looking for Atlantis. Would you not agree? Oh my God. There are more people looking for Atlantis now than probably in the entire 2,400-year history uh, of Atlantis up until this point. So, you know, and, and a lot of that is because, you know, things like Google Earth, um, people can now sit at home on their computer and, you know, look at translations of ancient manuscripts and look at sites around the Mediterranean that, you know, might coincide with the original description of Atlantis. You know, you don't have to go out there with a, a pickaxe and one of those, you know, screen things that archaeologists use to, uh, you know, shake the dirt through for relics and things like that. Is that you a can, you know, description? <laughs> it is. I've actually got the uh, American Archaeological Association guidebook right here. And it is. And it's just listed as that screen thing that we use sometimes yeah, <laughs> exactly. yeah. look okay. it up in the index <laughs> I, I, I i like the screen that. shaker thing for the dirt yeah yeah <laughs> yeah that's got to be frustrating to be because you know you're, you're an archaeologist you want to burrow down there as fast as you can and I, I would be wanting to like get a backhoe in there but those guys are down there with toothbrushes you know what's funny is there's actually an atlantis kind of connection there in that the whole reason why people decided in the in the latter part of the 19th century that it might be possible to look for Atlantis was because this fellow Schliemann, Heinrich Schliemann from Germany, uh, who was not an archaeologist, went to a site in what is now Turkey and followed the clues from Homer's Iliad looking for the city of Troy. Up until that point, no one was sure whether Troy had existed or not. It, it yeah. was, you know, it was a myth to be interpreted, you know, whether you interpret it as fact or fiction or somewhere in the middle, we're not sure. But he goes in there and he finds this ancient city uh, in a spot where, where no one had ever bothered to look before, you know, just using the clues from the manuscript. But in the process, he digs down so deep and so fast looking for what he assumes is going to be this, you know, like treasure hoard that he obliterates the, the city of Troy that he's looking for and gets down to like earlier version yeah, of He's for 140 right? years, yeah. yeah. So I mean, you know, people have been trying to like put back together the Troy that he destroyed <laughs> with his team of diggers. So uh, yeah. you know, 
there's a, a lesson for archaeology in there that it's I kind think of a, still... kind of like a, the role model for uh, Indiana Jones, you know, because Indiana Jones as an archaeologist was, you know, he'd just go in and basically steal crap out of a, a sacred site right, and run exactly. away. Let's get this thing from its original place and send it to a museum. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> it's much more safe there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, where yeah, where where it belongs. Mm-hmm. So. Your book is, by the way, it's called Meet Me in Atlantis, uh, and you've written previous books. You wrote uh, Turn Right at Machu Picchu. Yes. And uh, it, this is like, kind of like Turn Right at Machu Picchu. Essentially, you're kind of like talking about stuff that has happened in the past and combining it with mythology. Yeah. And, but it's also a little different. Now, why did you decide to write about Atlantis? Well, it actually sprang directly from the research of Turn Right at Machu Picchu. I was looking through some microfilm from 1911, the year when, when Machu Picchu was rediscovered, and I came across a front-page story in the New York Times that said, German discovers Atlantis in Africa. In Africa? And I was like, yeah. And I was like, what? A, people are have been looking for Atlantis. I thought Atlantis was this, like, you know, bubble city at the bottom of the ocean where they had, you know, nuclear-powered ships and, you know, Scrooge McDuck kept his millions of dollars or whatever. Oh, yeah. And, uh, it, you know, it, it, I read the, the story from 1911. It says, you know, all the clues from the dialogues of Plato. And then I was like, Plato? You know, because at the same time, I was working on a story about the great philosophers of all time for a, a magazine. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it, you know, every every single philosophy professor who I called was like, I was like, who are the greatest philosophers of all time. Number one, Plato. Number two, Aristotle. After that, you can argue. Every single one was like, Plato, greatest, Aristotle, number two. Mm-hmm. So I was like, okay, so the greatest philosopher of all time is the sole source for the Atlantis story. There's, you know, there's got to be something there that I haven't heard. So then I started digging into it and, you know, realized that, yes, there are a lot of people using the details. And there are a lot of details in the original Atlantis story to try to, A, prove it was real, and B, uh, show where they believe it had been located. Um, And that's how we got started. And then, you know, three years later, after traveling around the world, you know, I I had met a lot of these people and and heard their hypotheses and visited the sites that they thought might have been the original Atlantis. There are a lot of uh, interesting, intriguing sites out there. And I I was looking at the Atlantipedia, uh, which is run by Tony. Is it? It's Tony O'Connell, right? Tony O'Connell, yeah. Tony O'Connell, yeah, who, who you mentioned in your book. The Atlantipedia is vast. It's oh, my God. Of, yeah, it's huge. And I was just looking. Hundreds got, of thousands of words, yeah. Yeah, he, he's got a couple of lists out there of all the places that people have, have hypothesized Atlantis might have been. And there are literally right. hundreds of places. Oh, yeah. I couldn't even count them. I mean, I could have, but I chose not to. <laughs> uh, but you picked, for your book, you picked four, four places. You picked Malta, the island of Santorini. Uh, yep. Um, and on the coast of Morocco and the coast of Spain to go investigate. So why did you pick those yep. four spots? Well, you know, first of all, a lot of times you'll see locations for Atlantis that don't make any sense. Oh, yeah. If, if you, you know, look at the original details, it, assuming that Plato's story is real, let's start with that assumption, which is, you know, rocky to be certain. I mean, to, to assume the Atlantis story is real, first of all, you have to believe that uh, a sea god named Poseidon (laughs) created the, the island of Atlantis. Uh, so, you know, you're making some, some pretty big leaps here to start with, but let's assume that it's real. It's a story about a sea battle between Atlantis and Athens. So, you know, for, for a, ancient 
uh, navy to be able to travel to attack Athens, it doesn't really make sense that it's outside of a certain area. You know, it's mm-hmm. not going to be crossing the Atlantic Ocean, so it's not the Bahamas. It's not yeah. coming from, uh, you know, Indonesia, as some people have said. You know, there's a guy out there with a theory that Atlantis was in the Bolivian Altiplano. Yeah, I heard that one. Yeah, <laughs> right now, two miles up, which is, right? Yeah. Right, two miles up, hundreds of miles from the ocean. Uh, I, and, you I, you know, know, I've been to the Altiplano, uh, and I got to tell you this, it's not underwater. <laughs> yeah, it is, it is about the least underwater place you can imagine. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, so I, I, I drew a, you know, sort of a circle around Athens of a, of a certain distance. And then, you know, Plato gives clues in the story. He, he says, you know, it, it was opposite the pillars of Heracles or Hercules, as it's usually called. Um, it was um, near the land called Gades. It was an island. Um, you know, it was near the Panpelagos or the, the Infinite Sea. So, you know, once you, you start listing these things, you get the sense it had to be in the Mediterranean a certain distance from Athens. And the four places that made sense to me um, after uh, a week of uh, deliberations with Mr. Tony O'Connell over in Ireland were probably the most famous Atlantis site, the one that shows up on TV specials all the time, which is Santorini, mm-hmm. an island of Greece, um, the island of Malta in the center of the Mediterranean. There is a site just outside um, the Strait of Gibraltar in southern Spain. And then there's a spot in Morocco near the city that's now called Agadir, um, also just outside um, the Strait of Gibraltar, but to the south. Mm-hmm. Um, and those were the four sites that I went and explored at length. Yeah, and uh, I got to I got to say the uh, the one in Morocco is it's a shame that the, the locals are carting off all the stones from the ruins because I don't think that that was Atlantis because it's just too high up. I mean, what's the elevation of that site is what six hundred feet. It's pretty high up. I mean, if the, to have been hit by a wave, and we should point out that Plato's description in, in the Atlantis story is uh, is not the island sank to the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean, as is, is often, you know, bandied about, but um, it was destroyed by earthquakes and floods mm-hmm. in a single night. So the site you're talking about in Morocco, the guy who came up with this idea, um, Michael Hubner, who was an IT specialist in Bonn, Germany, you know, he decided that this sort of circular structure, uh, stone structure, um, I don't know, it's like 10 or 15 miles inland from the, the Atlantic coast, could have been hit by a huge tsunami. And the area has been hit by earthquakes and tsunamis frequently over the years. But yeah, it would have to be, you know, a thousand foot high wall of water or something to get to that site. Yeah. You know, could it be, uh, and this is what Huebner proposes, you know, two or three ancient stories that were put together as they sometimes are mm-hmm. and remembered as a single myth? Um, maybe, you know, it's possible. It's definitely possible. Um, you know, people love that theory because, you know, we're in this age of big data and what Michael Huebner did was he, he found 51 clues from Plato and, you know, he plugged them into this algorithm. And when it spat out at the end, it pointed him to this one spot in Morocco. And as he described it to me, it was, he's like, uh, you know, six Sigma, this is seven Sigma. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember that from your book. <laughs> you know, he's like, it's, it's impossible. You know, and it's like, you know, when you talk to one of these people who's like a pure, you know, mathematician, it's like, well, yeah, but you, you're controlling the variables here, right? You're plugging in the data that you want. 
Yeah, He's yeah. like, yes, but if it did not work, we would have a null set. <laughs> <laughs> I just briefly wanted to loop back around. You said something that was kind of stuck out to me, which was that Plato yeah. was the, the sole source yes. of the story of Atlantis. And it just seems, uh, frankly, kind of insane to me. That, I mean, was, Plato's well-respected, yeah, that and that's fine, but a lot of, he, he, he wrote a lot and yeah. um, used metaphors a lot and you know things like that. So it's, it's interesting to me that... Um, I wonder if you can just talk to to that, and you know, was he really the only source for this? And is, is yeah, that... I mean, nothing appears before Plato, and you know, we think that the the Atlantis story, which is written in two parts, appeared around 360 BC. So there's no you know reference to Atlantis or uh, you know a city at war with Athens that is you know struck by a cataclysm suddenly before 360 BC. A lot of people seem to have picked up on it afterward, especially people in the last 100, 150 years. You know, you've got Edgar Casey with his psychic visions of Atlantis going under the waves and blah blah blah. Um, you know, none of that would have been possible without Plato's original story. The, the really odd thing about Atlantis, and Plato absolutely, you know, used a lot of made-up stories and, and myths and things like that, you know, stories about uh, magic rings and, and uh, you know, people dying and coming back a thousand years later and things and like that. The cave. Yeah. Yeah, in the cave. Yeah, exactly. You know, as as one archaeologist uh, said to me, you know, one of the world's leading archaeologists who is a... Uh, big doubter of it, of Atlantis. He's like, you know, you know, why don't if you're going to look for Atlantis, why don't you go look for, for Plato's cave? Yeah. 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 I mean, that's my question. Too. Although, yeah. Well, yeah. well, prior to but, reading the Timaeus and Critias, uh, yeah. the only Plato that I had ever read was the Republic. I read that yeah. for a political theory class years ago. And I remember the cave and, and he was quite explicit when he tells the tale of the cave that this is just an allegorical tale. He, he never yeah. actually makes it out to be true. Right. You know, and of course, the, the the fact that a lot of Atlantologists, as as I call them in the book, people looking for Atlantis, cling to is that the character Critias, who is the narrator of the story of Atlantis in Plato's dialogue, says, you know, this is a true story. You know, I, this is this was handed down to me by my great 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 grandfather Solon, who heard it in Egypt. And Solon is a real character. Um, yeah, he did and almost certainly did go to Egypt. Uh, what he heard there, we don't know. Um, you know, but what, what I found really striking about the Atlantis story, and this doesn't necessarily, you know, make it any more true or any more false, but you've got the Republic, you know, which is Plato's masterwork, arguably the most influential book in Western civilization. And then you've got the Timaeus, which is his attempt to give a sort of mathematical logic to the cosmos. I think if you had asked Plato, he might have said the Timaeus was his most important work. At the start of the Timaeus, as a sort of bridge from the Republic to the Timaeus, and he, he you know, makes a clear link at the beginning of the story. He says, you know, hey, Socrates says, hey, you know, could, you, could someone tell a story illustrating all of this stuff that I talked about in my speech yesterday, which is a reference to the Republic? As the bridge between those two, Critias starts telling this story of Atlantis, of a, a you know, an island nation that, you know, was uh, located opposite the Pillars of Heracles and, you know, blah, 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 was very noble for a while and then became debased and was destroyed in a day and a night. And it's like, okay, well, that's, that's interesting. So then 
Plato goes into the meat of the Timaeus, where he does things like explain how the universe is made up of two kinds of tiny triangles mm -hmm. and, you know, the four elements, you know, Earth, fire, water, and air, um, and how the, the cosmos all, you know, sort of have this uh, geometric circular logic to them, blah, 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 blah. And then right after that, he comes back to Atlantis again, and this time he starts giving all of this, you know, numerical detail and, you know, what the circles of Atlantis were like. It's, you know, three concentric circles of land and water, and here's how big they were, and he gives measurements in stades, which was a measurement that was about 600 feet long used in, in ancient Greece. And at that point, you start to wonder, it's like, why is he doing this, you know? Why is he giving all of this detail for a story that he's already used, you know, for whatever purpose he was going to do to link the Republic to the Timaeus? Why is he coming back to this and all of a sudden giving all of this detail? Um, and I think that's what sucks a lot of people in. It, it's a really vivid, um, you know, very specific portrayal of this place. And he's, he's obviously doing something there, but whether he's trying to make it sound real when it's not, or whether he's, you know, using detail that he believes to be real or whether he's doing something else is, you know, something that, that no one has been able to solve up to this point. That's one of the questions I had for you is, and you, you probably can't answer it, but uh, it seems to me that this is a tale that grew in the telling and that somebody, you know, sort of tacked on a few elements, just like, in, you know, in the Internet yeah. today. I'm, I'm just curious, did Plato do that? Did he do it for a reason? Or did the Egyptians do it back when we don't know. Solon, the We story? don't know. You know, I think the only way we could figure out how much of this Plato made up and how much of it he believed, because um, we can't we can't know what the original story was. We but we, all we can tell is you know how much of it did Plato believe to be true um, would be if some sort of inscription showed up in Egypt in some ancient temple somewhere that matched the Atlantis story. Um, and that might happen someday. Right. It's it's possible. You know, they're still digging in that in that uh, area. You know, I, I think they've probably found just about everything they're going to find in Egypt, but it's not impossible. You know, they could find something that would match it. Um, you know, the other thing they could do is, you know, find a place that's located opposite one of the, the pillars of Heracles. Um, and there are a few. There's not, the most famous one is, is the Straits of Gibraltar, um, Strait of Gibraltar in, between southern Spain and Morocco, because we've got that giant rock of Gibraltar there. It's 1,400 feet high. But, you know, there's also the, the Straits of Messina um, and a few other spots around the Mediterranean. Um, so if you found a former, you know, capital city type place from the ancient world that was hit by a cataclysm, you know, uh, water and earthquakes before Plato's time, and also had some sort of, you know, three ring circular structure attached to it, then I think you would probably have to say, wow, there's probably, you know, a good chunk of truth to this, uh, this Atlantis story, whether that's ever going to happen, who knows? Yeah, that's know, but that, that would be enough to prove it. Yeah. I mean, all of this stuff is just guesswork because we don't know. You know, there's so many. I mean, there's the problem that Plato does sometimes use, uh, you know, figurative language. Mm -hmm. and sometimes he is, you know, he makes jokes. He, you know, he's, there's riddles in Plato. People, you know, people still haven't figured out what Plato was talking about, you know, definitively, you know, and here we are 2,400 years later, he's probably the most written about philosopher of all time. So, you know, people, people come to me and they're like, well, I need the definitive explanation of Plato. Yeah, right. I'm a, you know, I'm a guy who writes travel books. Essentially. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. You kind of touched on this, but maybe you can yep. expand on it. The way that Atlantis is telling of 
of Atlantis fits in is like right after the Republic and then like right before he starts talking about math. The first part of it. The first part okay, of it. Okay, and then he talks and, about it more directly and then after he goes, or and then he goes into the Timaeus, uh-huh. which is you know, sort of um the Timaeus is is sometimes cited as like the first great work of science. Yeah. You know, it's his way to try to give a, a sort of logic. And to, to back up just a second, you know, Plato was, was heavily influenced by the Pythagoreans, um, who were a sort of like religious cult slash, uh, you know, group of math professors who lived in southern Italy and who, you know, were, were trying to find the, the you know, mathematical and, and you know, geometric, uh, essentially like the secret code behind the universe. It's, it's, it's almost like the first attempt to find a physics, mm-hmm. you know, and explain everything through numbers. You know, at, at the same time, they're doing very strange things with numbers. They're, you know, to them, numbers are living beings. Some numbers are female. Some numbers are male. You know, so there's there's odd stuff going on with the Pythagoreans as well. Um, so the Timaeus has a lot of Pythagorean stuff in it. And then, you know, here he is with this, this, you know, first work of science trying to explain how the cosmos work, even though the telescope hasn't been invented yet. And then to come back to it, in a separate dialogue called the Critias, which immediately follows the Timaeus. And that's when he gives probably 80 or 90% of the, the details about the story of Atlantis and what Atlantis looked like and, you know, measurements. And, you know, he talked about this enormous plane that was attached to the, the city of, of Atlantis, a, a field plane, not a, like an airplane, although some have yeah, made yeah. that. Some have have made that claim as well. That was hundreds of square miles surrounded by an enormous ditch, and yeah, yeah, and as I cross it and stuff. I did the you know I did the math on this, and it's like you know okay, so they dug this giant canal, and I was like, wait a minute, if they were going to dig this canal, this would be like a hundred times the amount of earth that was moved to make the Panama Canal. Exactly. Mm -hmm. You know, this doesn't make any sense at all. So. You know, it's like, well, okay, maybe Plato is using these numbers in a Pythagorean sense that we don't understand, um, in which case, uh, you know, we, we can't use these numbers as like, you know, modern GPS coordinates. Maybe they he's doing things here that, uh, you know, have completely been erased over, you know, 2,400 years that we just, you know, simply can't understand anymore. Yeah. Um, I, I, I know that uh, the numbers, like, you know, he goes, he uses stage, and I did a little research yeah. on stage, and of course, you probably know this too, is that uh, there's no actual agreement on what a stage was. I mean, I've seen everything. No, no, there's kind of a rough number, um, you know, like I said, of around 600 feet, but, you know, what, what people will do a lot is they'll find a, a location, and then they'll choose the definition of stayed that fits their location. Exactly. I met one guy, you know, in, in ancient Portugal, a stayed was, you know, X, Y, Z. And I'm like, well, I'm pretty sure Plato wasn't from ancient Portugal. I think we, I think we know where he was from. Yeah, uh, probably, yeah. One of, one of the few certainties in dealing with Plato in Atlantis. Uh, yeah, so, you know, that, but, you know, th- there are these people out there who, who are like, you know... Um, you know, they're like uh, these, you know, judges who who interpret the Constitution uh, in a in a fundamental sense. It's like you know, well, this is you know, this is what the founding fathers were thinking on this day when they wrote this, and they're like, you know, everything in Atlantis has to be true. The numbers all have to be true. So you know, they twist their theory to to fit the numbers, um, and usually it it comes out you know sounding pretty ridiculous. Every once in a while, you see something and you're like, huh, wait a minute, that's weird. You know, like when I went up and talked to John Bremer, 
who is um uh, he's been studying plato for i think 60 years um and for fun he counts the syllables yeah i remember that part of the, book. In the ancient you know the ancient greek versions of of plato's works and um there's he's this famous right he, well he, he has found patterns there's, there's a lot of interesting things one of which was you know as i mentioned plato was uh, he studied with the pythagoreans um you know the pythagoreans one of the reasons why they thought they might there might be this secret mathematical code that they could crack was that you know in, in according to lore it was pythagoras himself but we people generally believe that anything the pythagoreans found is is attributed to pythagoras um you know he was probably the the first person outside of maybe some some babylonians um to realize that there was math behind music you know when you make a clear tone that's because certain ratios are at play here a one to two ratio or a two to three ratio so they established this 12 note Pythagorean musical scale, the first musical scale that we know of. Um, and what John Bremer and uh, another person, a uh, computer scientist in, in England who, who confirmed this um, separately, uh, found was that in a lot of Plato's works, including the Timaeus, he seems to be using uh, a structure, almost like an outline, based on this 12-note scale. And there are 12 parts to the dialogue and if you hit a part like say midway through um you know you're six out of 12 here that's a one to two ratio which is which is a um um a harmonious note um and in those spots plato tends to be writing about good things about harmonious things if you hit a spot where it's like seven out of 12 which is not a harmonious note um and i'm probably butchering the the terminology here because i don't know music that well but um you know that's when he's talking about you know chaos and disorder and things like that um and you know bremer seemed to think that the structure of plato's works might be you know every bit as important as the words themselves you know, and no one has really dug that deep into this. There may be things about this that we don't even understand yet. I mean, I would say that almost certainly there are things about this we don't understand. You know, Plato plays all sorts of, you know, math games and, you know, things like that. The, the trouble is that as somebody, you know, a great, uh, you know, Platonist pointed out uh, about 100 years ago, they said, you know, the, the mathematics in Plato is the most difficult part of the most difficult philosopher of all time. Yeah, so, so nobody really wants to take this stuff on. It's kind of like the Da Vinci Code, you know? I mean, It is in a lot of ways. And there are, you know, nobody doubts that Plato is making references to things like the Fibonacci sequence or the golden ratio in his works. You know, he's, he's you know, in, and in something like his book, The Laws, which was, I think, the last dialogue he wrote, notorious for being, like, the most uh, boring uh, thing that is observed from ancient history. You know, I met a philosophy professor and he starts paging through. I was like, have you ever read this? He's like, you know, even people who study Plato don't read the laws. We just kind of... Just kind of dip into it, you know, but there are, you know, there's the number 5040, which he calls this, this, you know, super important number. Well, if you break it down, 5040 is the sum of one times two times three times four times five times six times seven. And it appears seven times in the laws. So it looks like, you know, at the very least, Plato is playing some sort of number games here. And, you know, the, the, the idea that he, you know, there's also a, uh, an instance in the Republic where he refers to, uh, maybe misquoting this, the three and the four attached to the pen pad. And somebody pointed out at some point, they're like, well, that's a three, a four, and a five. That's a Pythagorean triangle. 
So, you know, he's, he's dropping little hints that there's other stuff going on here. But, you know, whether anyone is ever going to, to decode what he was doing is, is you, know, you know, the future may know that, but I certainly don't. You know, because remember, he's, he's not writing these dialogues, you know, to be read by a modern audience 2,400 years later. He's using these to teach his students at the academy in Athens, which was the first university. Um, you know, he's, he's teaching a, a classic Pythagorean uh, quadrivium, I think they called it, a four-part curriculum to students. So they whatever he was doing, his students, you know, sitting around uh, in the, the garden in Athens, they, they would have known what he was doing. But we have completely lost whatever it was. Um, and if, you know, if, if somebody can at some point start to figure that out, maybe we'll have a better sense of how much of Atlantis could have been based on historical events or, or even just how much of it did Plato himself actually believe. The answer could be none. The answer could be a lot. Yeah. I, I, I tend to think that he believed at least part of it. And I, this is something I wanted to ask you about is he, uh, he invokes his ancestor, Solon, and yeah. also his mentor, Socrates, you know, and who both swear that this is true. For Plato and in, in, his, in that culture, uh, would that have been disrespectful to an ancestor to basically involve them in attesting to the truth of a fairy tale? You know, it, it might have been. But again, you know, um, I, I don't want to go back into my, like, post-structuralist terminology that drove me out of grad school in the early 90s. But, you know, he's using uh, a series of masks here. You know, he's he could be hiding behind Socrates to say something that he he wants to, uh, you know, play with. So we, you know, we can't know whether he intended that to be real or whether he, you know, was using that as some sort of rhetorical device or, or, you know, whatnot. Um, so, you know, if, if we knew for a fact that this was intended as a piece of written history, yes, it would have been disrespectful for him to put those words in the mouth of, of Socrates or, or in, into the mouth of Solon, you know, but that's, that's another thing that we have to deal with here, another layer, which is that written history in 360 BCE, you know, this is still new technology. This is, you know, as far as the Greeks are concerned, this is technology that's less than 100 years old. You know, Herodotus has, has, you know, the father of history, has just started doing this stuff about 100 years before, and you know, writing down history rather than allowing it to be passed on orally. And when it's when history is passed on orally, it's done in the form of stories, which become myths. You know, so now from our vantage point, we have to decode those myths and and try to pluck the truth out. And this is you know, this is a lot of what archaeologists and anthropologists do. So you know, Plato, through the character of Socrates, wrestling with this idea. You know, is written uh, history true? Or is uh, oral history true? Things that are passed down as stories true? And I think it's in the Republic. Um, or no, it's actually in a different word, but I can't remember which. You know, Socrates comes out and, and says, you know, look, I actually trust oral history more. I, I you know, trust things that are, that are passed down not in writing because you can engage with them. You can argue with them. You know, whereas written history is just sort of this lump right here and you can't you can't sort of, you know, poke the holes in it. It is what it is. Um, you know, so that's just one more gigantic problem sitting in the middle of the attempt to uh, try to solve the Atlantis story. But yeah, the thing about the written history, though, is that um, 
and this is one of the reasons I think that probably this is true, is that Solon finds out from the Egyptians that the Greeks right. at one point actually had a written language, and they had lost... Well, animals. that's, you know, that's the half of the story that everyone tends to ignore, which is the Athens half of the story. And there's a fascinating guy, a geophysicist in, in Greece named uh, Stavros Papamarinopoulos. And he's probably the guy who has done the most work on trying to figure out the, the truth from the fiction in the Atlantis story. And he's, I mean, he's a real geophysicist. He's found, uh, you know, ancient ancient canals and things like that, that um, people weren't sure if they were real or not. And he, you know, he went down to southern Greece and, you know, did the... Um, uh, the soundings and such, and it's like, okay, well, yeah, actually, they did build this canal where two ships could pass, and it was a mile long and that sort of thing. And what he has done is he has looked at the Athens part of the story and, and shown that a lot of details that seem completely pointless if you just sort of skim the story actually coincide with Greek history as we've come to understand it in the last hundred years. You know, he talks about... Um, a spring on the north side of the Acropolis that was destroyed uh, by an earthquake. And well, guess what? In the 1930s, they found a spring that had been clogged by an earthquake uh, around 1200 BCE, which is around the time when, uh, you know, in the, the Atlantis story, they say, uh, you know, the Greeks lost written language. Well, what did they lose around that time? Linear B, the famous, uh, you know, uh, language that was de decoded in, in the middle of the 20th century. Um, so there are enough of these details that, you know, Plato could not have known, you know, unless he was, he was, you know, uh, clairvoyant or something, in which case, uh, maybe Edgar Cayce was right. You know, he had to have some details from the past that he believed to be true, and especially those that were dealing with the Greek part of the story. So, you know, there's enough of that to make me think that, you know, this there are elements of the Atlantis story that can be based in history. But yeah, and I I know the like for me the part uh, with Linear B that always kind of resonated is that we always in that oral tradition there's things that are legends that are told from a time before, which is why how I always figured that he that's why he was making reference to these lost languages, less so from what he, uh, Solon had gotten from the, the Egyptians, but just it was kind of generally known that at one time people kind of knew how to do this, and we sort of know about it, but we don't right. anymore. Because you know, he is, he's such is... a huge fan of the, the oral tradition that I can mm -hmm. see that being passed down. You know, one time we knew how to write with sticks, but now we don't. But at the same yeah. time, though, the spring is a trivial enough thing that you know you can't see people like sitting around the campfire talking about the spring on the Acropolis. I can't quite imagine that. No, it's it's not like, you know, a grandfather pulling the young child aside and saying, let me tell you the story of how the spring on the Acropolis got caught. <laughs> exactly, yeah. You know, so, it's like a, like a 3,000-year-old liquid plumber commercial or something. Yeah. <laughs> so let's, uh, I wanted, to, I wanted to, to swivel back to Atlantis a little bit. So Atlantis itself, the... In generally speaking, is pretty well mocked from the quote-unquote official mainstream perspective. Nobody takes that seriously. Definitely. Definitely. Almost nobody. Right. So, so my first question is, is and, and I'll follow this in a second with another, but how did you sell that you were going to write a book on Atlantis when it kind of had that stigma? Well, because my publisher, Penguin, you know, they had done one book with me so far, so mm -hmm. they knew... 
you know, I was, uh, you know, a, a real reporter, a real writer. Um, they knew there would be a travel component to this as well as just going back and looking at the original story of Atlantis. Um, and, you know, they know that, you know, Atlantis is an evergreen story. You know, it's it's one of, if not the greatest mystery of all time. So, you know, people are fascinated by this. You know, it's it's funny because, you know, whenever I post something online, I'll get comments and, you know, one of them will be, hey, that's really interesting. I never knew that. And nine of them will be, you know, my psychic told me that 50,000 years ago, uh, the continent of Mew, blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a, a lot of people are just interested in, in Atlantis for their own purposes and don't want to hear what anybody else has to say. But there is a, a you know, a general high level of interest um, in Atlantis. And I think that's why Penguin said, you know, OK, you're not crazy. Go ahead and, and write the book. So yeah. but but why is it why then from that academic perspective is the story rather shunned? Well, there's I think there is. From a, you know a very contemporary perspective, there is just sort of a, a general idea that this is an area for fringe thinking and nuts and and stuff like that. You know, it's Bigfoot, it's UFOs. Um, specifically, I think we can trace this back to a guy named Ignatius Donnelly, one of the great characters of of Atlantology. You know, Ignatius Donnelly is a, a U.S. congressman, former U.S. congressman in Minnesota. In 1881, I think it is, he sits down. He has no money, uh, so he's he decides he's going to write a book about Atlantis. And remember, this is right after Heinrich Schliemann has found Troy using the clues from the Iliad. So people have started to think, hey, you know, if we found Troy, maybe we'll find Atlantis. So he goes and finds, like, every scrap of information that could, could possibly, you know, relate to, you know, Atlantis. And, you know, some of it, makes a little bit of sense you know he, he talks about events that happened in the past he he draws parallels to the the old testament and there are you know indications that maybe some of the things that are talked about in atlantis may have parallels to um you know uh the 10 plagues of egypt but then he starts making these outlandish claims like you know he's the guy who who came up with the idea that Atlantis sank to the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean and the Azores Mountains, uh, the Azores Islands that are the tips of the great mountains of Atlantis and the Gulf Stream upflows the way it does because it goes around Atlantis. And he comes, you know, he goes into like, you know, Mayan history and uh, uh, Egyptian history and Hebrew history and just tries to prove that every great culture that uh, humanity has ever produced actually can be traced back to Atlantis, uh, Atlanteans getting in boats and sailing off to these different places around 10,000 BC. Yeah, um, and I think that's the diffusionism, exactly. You know, and that's the idea that makes academics really uncomfortable. The idea of this super race that once existed. And this is, this is you know, like the, the, the light bulb that draws the moths for a lot of these people. It's like, yes, 10,000 years ago, there was a super race that, you know, uh, created everything we've ever heard of, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, even though there's a, a mountain of evidence to the contrary, this is an idea that a lot of people latch on to. Um, and I think it's, it's, you know, Donnelly and his crazy stuff. But I, I think I've, there's an example I give in the book. I can't remember it precisely, but it was like, uh, you know, the kings of Atlantis uh, referred to a uh, scourge of the body that uh, they got rid of. And 
Donnelly says, oh, really? Well, you know what that means? They're referring to syphilis. And because the ancient Hebrews <laughs> performed circumcision, uh, and because modern actuarial tables show us that Jews tend to live longer than most other people, we can therefore, you know, <laughs> draw the line relatively quickly back to Atlantis. You know, so if, you, if, okay. if you're reading very quickly, you're like, uh-huh, and then you stop and think about it for a second. You're like, this is nuts. You know, no wonder two-thirds of the emails I sent off to, to uh, addresses that ended in .edu never were responded to. Oh, yeah. You know, this is academic kryptonite. Um, I, I experienced I, a, a similar thing. You know, my phone calls to the FBI regarding D.B. Cooper so far are yeah, 100% I'm sure. not returned. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I'm sure like, yeah, we'll get on that one right away. But you know who else was really big on, on Atlantis, the super race, and, uh, and all that stuff was the Nazis. I mean, Heinrich Himmler and all that stuff. Yep. They were big well, that time was, for Atlantis. You know, they had, they had this whole team... Anunerba, I think it was called, put together by Himmler. And the whole point was it's very much like the the first Indiana Jones movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark. They're looking for ancient evidence of this super Aryan race Mm. that, of course, eventually became the the most super race of all, in their opinion, um, you know, the National Socialists. And what's interesting is they had planned um, a big expedition to the Canary Islands, uh, which is which is not you know as far as possible sites go. It's not the worst one you could come up with uh, for the the fall of 1939. And it seems that the reason they never got there is because uh, the Nazis decided to attack Poland instead. So it's like bad you know, priorities. One, yeah, well, just one more bad thing to come out of that whole era. But yeah, I mean, they were the theories. The theories they were promoting were just completely nuts. I mean, going back tens of thousands of years and things like that. And you know, b- because stuff like that is interesting to a lot of people, uh, it just it gives this tinge to Atlantis in general that makes it sound like you know a subject that's only dealt with by crazy people. Um, and I don't think that should be the case. No. No, but what what do you think it's going to take? I mean, what would we have to find before it would suddenly come out of that that fringe into the the limelight and people would be willing to take it seriously? Well, I think you'd have to find either uh, someone discovering what the pattern is with these numbers that Plato is using. You know, he, he uses dozens of numbers in the second part of the Atlantis story um, that. You know, like I mentioned, people have latched onto like their GPS coordinates, um, you know, and can be used to find a city of an exact size and this gigantic plane of an exact size. You know, if if somebody could decode those numbers and figure out what Plato was actually doing there, and if the, it was actually referring to something that we can understand, I think that would be one form of proof. The other form of proof, of course, would be to find some sort of ancient ins- inscription in Egypt, you know, something that matches the story that Solon supposedly originally heard around 500 or 600 BCE. Um, And the other thing would be, you know, if someone could pile up enough evidence, if someone could say, okay, uh, Plato said it was opposite a land called Gades. Well, here's, you know, there's Cadiz in southern Spain. There's Agadir in Morocco. Both of those come from the Phoenician word, Gadir, meaning an enclosed city. So if, you know, if you can find one of these old Gadirs that is near, uh, you know, one of the pillars of Heracles and shows evidence that, uh, you know, a, 
civilization of some sort was struck suddenly by earthquakes and floods and was destroyed. And if there are, you know, some elements of the description that Plato gives, if there is, you know, some sort of concentric circles there, then I think the preponderance of evidence would, would say, okay, you know what, this is, there's probably a large kernel of truth at the center of this. You know, whether any of those is going to happen, I, you know, I honestly couldn't say. But uh, one of those three things, I think, would, would certainly move the needle back toward, okay, Atlantis has, has got a lot of truth in it. Yeah, I think, uh, and this is one of, the, one of the problems that I have with the whole thing, is like, um, so the Pillars of Heracles could have been many places. As there's been, yeah. you know, a, the time that Plato was writing, the Greeks had actually been exploring and colonizing the Western Mediterranean for you know a couple hundred years, as, as far yeah. as I understand. So for them, the, the Pillars of Heracles must have been uh, the Strait of Gibraltar. But at the same time, if Athens and Atlantis were both wiped out the same day, Mm-hmm. then that means that Atlantis had to be inside the, pr- the Pillars of Heracles. And yet the, the most likely site, I think, is, is Spain. And so this is one of the things I'm wondering about, is um, is it really totally 100% true that they were wiped out the very same day by the same cataclysm? Or could it <laughs> be I, that it honestly kind of close together? To be able to give you a percent clarity on that? Yeah. Come on, man. <laughs> this is a three thousand year old story passed down maybe or maybe not through at least, you know, three or four pairs of hands. Um well, that's why we called you Mark. I know, I know. I I would note two things. One, you know, with uh ancient myths of this sort, there is I can't remember the term off the top of my head, um where a bunch of things tend to come together. So they uh you know, there could be two or three stories that are combined into one story. So, you know, yeah. hypothetically, Rome could be destroyed in an earthquake tomorrow, and that could, you know, be put together with the the story of Lisbon in 1755 being destroyed by an earthquake. And 10,000 years from now, people are going to say, oh, those things happened at the same time, um, you know, just hypothetically. You know, the other thing is, and and this is much more interesting, around the time that you know, Linear B disappears when this group called the Sea Peoples, uh, which is a still very mysterious group that seems to have shown up in various places around the Mediterranean and start, you know, attacked suddenly from the sea. Around the same time that, that those things are happening, there is this wave of earthquakes, floods, famines, you know, just generally bad news. I think the dates are roughly 1250 BCE to 1150 BCE. And it, there's a great term. I can't remember exactly. It's, it's like seismological unzipping. They're making <laughs> a fault line in the Mediterranean that just caused all sorts of chaos and, you know, one place has no food for two or three years, so they get on their boats and they attack Egypt. They attack the Hittites in what, in what is now Turkey. You know, they, they end up in Israel. Um, so it's possible that there were two cataclysms occurring roughly at the same time in Athens and wherever um, you know, the, the inspiration for Atlantis was. It is, it is not at all impossible that in this period of chaos, which is, is a, it, um, you know, it's, it's not proven historically, but it's generally regarded as true historically. Historians won't argue about the Sea Peoples or about this, you know, um, this period of, of of great chaos. And there are actually like little fragments, I think, of pottery from the Hittites and such, where the the king of um, is it the king of the Hittites? I can't remember, but it's it's oh, yeah. you know 
whatever the group was before the Phoenicians, there, there's a communication between one and the other where they're basically saying, we're being attacked, come save us. And it seems to be the same people who attacked Egypt around the same time. So whatever was going on, it was, you know, it was really bad. There was famine, et cetera, et cetera. And this may also be, uh, you know, the same thing that, that wiped out Linear B, wiped out whatever the Greek culture was now that we call the, the Minoans, but obviously they weren't the Minoans at the time. Yeah, I, um, I, I've wondered about that, that, like a string of earthquakes, or maybe, and I'll probably get a, an email from a volcanologist or a geologist about this, but right. it's, it's <laughs> I'm sure a possibility I've, I've, that uh, yeah. an earthquake could have touched off the volcano in Santorini, Thera, and caused an eruption of that, which, of course, wiped out a very ancient city there, Akrotiri, which you paid a visit to in your book, by the way. I did. I did. And, you know, Akrotiri is fascinating and there are parallels with Atlantis, you know, but I think what the reason why Akrotiri and um, Santorini are so appealing to, you know, those academics who are willing to even discuss Atlantis is that we've got some concrete evidence there. You know, there obviously was a huge explosion. There obviously was a maritime culture there. Um, But, you know, beyond that, the the parallels with Plato are, you know, not really that strong. But I think, you know, people say, want to say, okay, we have some evidence of something here. Um, you know, why don't we relate it to the Atlantis story? But my, my guess is that if it was based on one cataclysmic event, it's probably a different one. Um, and I should point out that the explosion of Thera does not match up with those, that seismic unzipping or whatever the exact term is. Um, Thera, they still haven't nailed it down. The, the archaeologists who base it on pottery, I think they want to say it's around 1500 BCE, and then uh, based on some sort of carbon dating, they say it's around 1610, 1615 BCE. Mm -hmm. So they know roughly when it was, but they don't know exactly when it was. Um, But that said, you know, Akrotiri is is fascinating. The whole island of Santorini is, is, you know, amazingly beautiful. So... I highly recommend to visit if you want to check it out for yourself. No, I totally want to go there. I, and, and luckily, I was luckily <laughs> I was able to visit it uh, via Google Street View, and uh, oh. very cool. And I, I've actually driven all over the island on Google. Uh, but, <laughs> and and this really kind of annoys me is that I wanted to take a similar tour of Malta, and you can't yeah. do Street View on Malta. Really? You can look at Google Pictures, but there ain't no Street View. That's interesting. Malta's a strange place. It's a very. I mean, it's like a a fortress mentality mm-hmm. inside an island that is set up like a fortress. So it, it wouldn't shock me to, to hear that the Maltese didn't want Google on their island. That I would, you know, that wouldn't shock me at all. Uh-huh. I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's a strange place. Um, as I think I mentioned in the book, it, it, one of the first things I, I realized when I was there is they, it had like the greatest percentage of beautiful women and fat men I had ever seen in my life. So I don't know if, uh, you know, the mating rules are different in Malta, but <laughs> I've, I've heard you know, similar things about Brazil. That could be, that could very well be. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, but Malta is fascinating because they have those ancient temples there, yeah. um, which are, you know, a thousand years older than I think even the great pyramid in Egypt. Um, and Malta was destroyed suddenly by a cataclysm that wiped out the population apparently a long time before Plato was writing. Um, you know, it's an Island, it's near the Straits of Messina. Um, so, you know, Ma- I think Malta is a more appealing candidate probably than Santorini, just, you know, based on comparing it to Plato's original story. Um, you know, that said, I, I came up with four candidates in the book. There are others that are, you know, not far behind. 
you know, we can't have two <laughs> original Atlantises. It's possible, you know, one or two or three cataclysms were put together in one story, but it's it's you know, it's not as neat a package as we would hope it would be. What are your what are your feelings about the kind of more out there? I mean, you know, people have said oh, it's on the East Coast or it's, you know, in Antarctica right. or right. what are, what's your sense about that? You know, I I have very little patience for that stuff because it tends to <laughs> I agree. You know, it's it's cherry picking theory. Yeah, the Earth crust displacement. It's like, you know, uh, you know. Look at this map. It matches this map of Atlantis. It's like, okay, a, the map of Antarctica you're you're using, which you're cherry picking, is from the 1950s. <laughs> we have a lot more recent uh, maps than that. You know, b. As uh, I confirmed when I was in Alaska a few weeks ago, and they're talking about how the land is rising because the glaciers are melting, um, there's isostatic rebound, which means that an an Antarctica that had no ice on it would be much further out of the water and have a very different shape. So don't Mm -hmm. tell me this looks like this. And see, the, the map of Atlantis that you're comparing it to is something that a guy drew in 1666 and just kind of made up. Yeah. You know? Sure. Yeah. You know. So. So. You know. I don't think. You know. And then they're like, "Well, I think that map was actually passed down from Solon." It's like you know, Plato doesn't say anything about a map. As far as we know, people were not drawing maps. You know, at that time. So the you know the idea that you know we have an ancient map, while totally cool and the basis for a great fictional movie, uh, makes you know no no sense logically. Yeah, I got to agree with that. So we're left yeah. with. Um... I don't know the middle of the Mediterranean, or maybe the coast of Spain. I'm I'm discounting Morocco because uh, if they did indeed cut a canal to the sea, then it, the canal would have had to have been many hundreds of feet deep. So, you know, you know, it's like I said, it's possible that they had a, a, um, a settlement on the coast as well as this circular ring thing, which is extremely cool. Mm-hmm. It's probably the most interesting circular ring you know, thing I saw in all my time um, around the Mediterranean, you know, but my guess is if it did exist in, you know, some form similar to what Plato describes, it was probably in the Western Mediterranean, um, you know, and there's a lot of information being passed word of mouth by, you know, sailors, the Phoenicians, the Carthaginians um, around that time. And, you know, as, as I point out in the book, remember um, the, 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 Part of the Mediterranean near the Strait of Gibraltar is, um, you know, run by the Carthaginians around the time of Plato. So, you know, they're passing false propaganda back to the Greeks saying, like, you know, here's all the crazy stuff that's going on outside the mouth of of the Mediterranean. Don't go out there, you know, because here's what you're going to encounter. Um, Yeah, there be monsters. Right, exactly. Did some of that get tied in with, uh, you know, the stories that Plato heard while he was visiting Syracuse, you know, after the death of Socrates? Who knows? Who knows? You know, unfortunately, we, you know, we can't just go back to the original sources here. Um, Yeah, you know, disinformation was not invented like just yesterday. It's, no, 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 no. For a while. Exactly, exactly. So, you know, but I'm, I would guess probably, you know, somewhere in the Western Mediterranean. What I was, I was talking to Stavros Papamarinopoulos not too long ago, or emailing with him. Um, what he wants to do is a major survey of the site in southern Spain, you know, major geophysical survey, which has not yet been done. Um, unfortunately, the, the spot he wants to look at is in a uh, nature reserve. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, 
called, you know, Dunyana National Park. So it would be like going to the middle of, uh, you know, Yosemite with a bunch of ground-penetrating radar and things like that, being like, okay, yeah, just um, animals step aside for a little while. Uh, it's going to be. I know that this particular site has also been proposed. Uh, this is near Cadiz, Spain. Has been proposed yeah. as also possibly the site of Tartessos, the lost city. Yeah. And uh, you talked to one academic who claimed that uh, a massive tsunami had wiped out this city, which he believes was Atlantis, and that there were just tons and tons and tons of like stones and, and, and stone blocks from the city in the ocean. Yeah. Now, is that yeah. true, or is that did he just kind of make? That? No, I think I think that was exaggerated. That was a TV version of events. Um, what happened is they, they a guy came in with a TV crew. And they wanted um, a documentary on Atlantis, so they kind of took work that one team of Spaniards was doing in the area and sort of twisted it into this more Atlantean thing that showed up on TV. And everyone except the guy who, who sort of parachuted in from the U.S. Uh, was, you know, shocked when the thing came out. They're like, what? What the hell is this? Yeah, I heard uh, and from your book, I gather they weren't they weren't too pleased by it. No, they were not. You know, I mean, the, one of the guys who uh, was with them, this this other German named Reiner Kuhne, you know, he's he's a physicist. Uh, he's got Asperger's. So he is uh, like, you know, speaking, you know, pure truth. He is unable to lie about anything. And when I asked him about this, he said, uh, how does he put it? He's like, well, they are there with the TV crew. They can say like the Spaniards, oh, look, maybe this was a horse enclosure from the 14th century A.D. No one is going to give you money for that. So then they turn to me. And I say, hmm, maybe this was Atlantis or maybe not. So they put me on TV for maybe two minutes. Actually, I think it was one minute and 32 seconds. So then they turn to the other man and he says, yes, this was Atlantis. And I found stones in the water and everything. And that is how they make their money for the TV show. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. I I think Reiner's version of events uh, is about as unfiltered as it can get. That, yeah, that sounds about right to me. Right, so, uh, do you guys have any more you want to talk about? No, I, I was going to say, Mark, we've, I know we, uh, we've, we've taken take up the... an hour of your uh, afternoon already and don't want to take up too much more yeah. of you. Yeah, no, it's fine, it's fine. Um, is, so, I mean, we've asked a bunch of questions so far, and I think we're, we're kind of running through. So, just from your perspective, is there things about Atlantis or the story of Atlantis that you want people to know that, that we haven't come up or come across so far in today's conversation? You know, I think the thing that is really fun about the Atlantis story is that, you know, this, this is, it's, it's like a puzzle to be decoded. And nobody has decoded it. And, you know, everybody is so busy coming up with these crazy theories about how there was a, you know, tropical paradise on Antarctica. And then suddenly the Earth's crust shifted and it was you know, covered by two miles of ice um, or, you know, the, the world was, uh, you know, thrown into the orbit of a comet or, or, you know, this, you know, stuff that people were talking about 50 years ago. You know, if you just sit down and look at the story and read a little bit about Plato and the things that he was talking about, you realize that there is, it, it's like a treasure map that no one has figured out yet. You know, there's, there's probably a, some sort of musical code buried in there. There's probably some sort of numerical, you know, number games buried in there. There's probably, I would guess, you know, greater than 50% chance that there is the kernel 
of a historic event or maybe a series of historic events in there. So, you know, rather than coming at it as I've got an idea of where Atlantis is and I'm going to, you know, sort of retrofit this and look for evidence and cherry pick what I want to prove my theory, um, you know, go in there and look at what's there and, you know, do a little research. There's a lot to be found out about this Atlantis story. And, uh, you know, if, if it does turn out to be largely true, it will, you know, I don't know, maybe, you know, rewrite a good chunk of ancient history. And if not, there's going to be a lot of other interesting things to be found in there. Well, there's, uh, there's certainly no shortage of interesting stuff at the bottom of the ocean, I'm sure, because uh, especially... Oh. After the end of the last uh, glacial period, I mean, the sea levels rose hugely. And so there's probably well, all kinds of cities down there. You know, I went up and I talked to the guys at Woods Hole who, you know, found the, uh, uh, the Titanic. And they're showing, you know, all this stuff that they can use. It's like, you know, hey, we have a camera that uh, if the water's clear, uh, you know, we can see a cinder block from a mile away. And I said to them, they're like, you know, think about it. 10,000 years ago, 15,000 years ago. Sea levels are rising. Um, we've already got, we know there were settlements around the Mediterranean, even in, you know, if you look at the, I can't remember how to pronounce the name of the place in Turkey. It was about 10,000 years ago, Begli Tepe or whatever. Um, Gobekli Tepe? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, we know that there were fairly large settlements, fairly large, you know, uh, structures and things like that. And he said, you know, where do you build a settlement, a city in the ancient world. You hit it where, you put it where a river hits the sea. Mm -hmm. Well, what are the first places to disappear when the water starts rising by 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 feet? You know, a floodplain where the river hits the sea. And, you know, so many of these places have never really been looked at, um, you know, uh, to a, a really granular degree. Um, and he said, I said, you know, well, why don't, people do this could you you know could you you know begin to start to think about you know where these places might be hidden he just sort of waves me off he's like we could start tomorrow if we had the money yeah. <laughs> so, so it's not that these things are impossible it's just that you know there isn't the money to to you know go around with a submarine and and look for the lost cities of the mediterranean but i think you know as as you know the price of things fall over time um i think we'll keep coming up with interesting stuff that's out there yeah, I'm kind of looking at Google to solve a lot of this. I think that they're probably, if, if they respond to my emails ever, <laughs> uh, I, I think a, a, a huge fleet of autonomous underwater uh, vehicles uh, mapping the ocean floor could actually find a lot of interesting stuff. And, and you know, I mean, let's face it, Google's going to have to be the one probably to do this. Or someone like that. Yeah. You know? I mean, the other problem is that, you know, it, what, what you know used to occur to me at 3 o'clock in the morning while writing this book was, you know, Chances are, if there was an Atlantis on the coast of the Western Mediterranean, you know, it's probably under a condo complex or a golf course. Yeah. <laughs> it's probably Very been likely. bulldozed yeah. and will never be found. Exactly. You know, you yeah. know, one of the, the great mysteries of all time might be, you know, sitting at the, the bottom of a landfill in, you know, on the Costa del Sol or something. Absolutely. So, you know, that's the sad thing about ancient history, too, is, you know, I've, I've studied a little bit of Greek history, et cetera. Yeah. And, Back in the day, you know, they'd like, you know, overrun a city, kill all the men, sell the women and children into slavery, and then just dismantle the city and destroy it. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of sad, all the stuff that's been just destroyed. And it, you know, it continues to this day in, in yeah. you know, Morocco, where I went, you know, they're pulverizing these ancient ruins to make paint. 
mm-hmm. you know, um, in Peru where I, I wrote about Machu Picchu, you know, there's a city outside or a structure outside of the city of Cusco called Sacsayhuaman. Oh, I've been which, there. I love that place. You know, if that were still intact, yeah, as it was, you know, when the Spaniards arrived in 1532, the descriptions they give it's like it, it's like the size of a battleship but made of stone, and we still don't know exactly what it was there for. But over the next, you know, 400 something years, every time, you know, uh, Jose Blow wants to build a, a, you know, an extension on his barn, he goes up exactly. to Saxawaman, pulls down these nicely cut rocks, carts them off, and uh, you know, builds an extension on his house or whatever. So, you know, the the They've the, done the same thing, uh, the Great Wall of China. That's some of the problems. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah, is that for for centuries, local guys have just been stealing rocks right, and right. just to make their house or their fence or whatever they needed. Right. So, you know, just to, to think of the things that we are, are never going to know because they've been repurposed. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure we're doing stupid stuff like right, that right now, but we just haven't realized what it is yet. Um, no, I really I was, appreciate you taking the time yeah. to, to talk with us. This was fantastic. Oh, my pleasure. I love your podcast, and I appreciate you know the fact that you guys were able to get together on a Saturday morning. Um, I know it's not always easy to herd cats, so uh, I really appreciate that. Oh, of course. Oh, we appreciate yeah, you, you taking the time to talk to us. Oh, and by the way, uh, uh, the book was great. I highly recommend it. Meet me in Atlantis. I was going to say it. It you know it did okay in hardcover, but now that's in paperback, it's selling pretty well. That's what awesome. that means. I don't yeah. know. Yeah, and maybe you know people who like Atlantis. Are, are only willing to pay yeah twelve dollars for a book. <laughs> that could be the ceiling, you know. Well, we have about three listeners, so I'm sure at least one of them is going to buy a copy of the book. I'll check the iTunes comments and see. No, that's um, so. Just so yeah. you have an idea, when we get yeah, yeah. close, I'll send you an email just so you know it's coming out. Oh, cool! I appreciate that. I mean, I'm, so that, you, know, it, you don't spend an hour and a half talking to three yahoos and then it never goes out. <laughs> yeah, no, and, and I mean, you know, you, you guys are pros. You know what to do. Oh, yeah, we're pros, right? <laughs> you obviously have trust me. If you could, if you know, in like the first forty-eight hours after a hardcover book comes out, you essentially have to agree to do every single interview. So, yeah. do you know how many drive time Yahoos? Uh, you know, I, mean, I had to talk to about Atlantis. I believe it. I, yeah. And the questions are just like, you know, hey, you know, the bottom of the ocean. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> to, to actually yeah. have a conversation, uh, you know, did you try in the Bahamas? I heard the Atlantis down there is really nice. That's right. <laughs> now they got that they got that whole road system down there in the Bahamas. Yeah. yeah. As someone who worked on a cruise ship in the Bahamas, that Atlantis yeah. not nice, as it turns out. Not actually nice. <laughs> no, we hope that one gets hit by earthquakes and floods. Yeah, I really uh, do hope that. One. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's so yeah. funny. Occasionally, I do that George Nouri coast to coast show uh, yeah. when it comes out, you know. And George is actually okay. He's you know he's crazy. He's like you know, oh, are aliens really coming to take our guns? Um, yeah. yeah, they are. You know, but if he'll allow you to direct the conversation back to uh, you know sort of normal territory. And I a lot of the times when I do shows like that, it's because I always think of like um, you know, have you ever seen the book uh, Chariots of the Gods? Oh yeah. The, I, read I don't know how much Tony O'Connell told me. I heard Ira Glass tell almost the identical story. There are so many people who came to things like Atlantis, starting out with Chariots of the Gods, and then at a certain point, they realized that this is all a bunch of crap, but it is actually interesting. Yeah. And if, you know, if I can find one out of ten of those people, 
you know, then it's worthwhile. Then it's worth, you know, sitting through the, the uh, uh, caller question portion of George Nouri's show where it's like, I'll, I'll leave you with one, one last anecdote that I hope is mildly amusing. I go on Coast to Coast for the Atlantis book where, you know, George is like, well, let's take some calls. And some guy comes on and he says, I think Atlantis was located in Finland because in the Finnish language, there's a word that sounds like Atlantis. And also it's the same. Thank you. Goodbye. <laughs> I'll take my answer off the air. The next day I'm on, do you know the show, the NPR show, what is it, On Point yeah. out of Boston? Yeah. And it's a, it's a guest host. It's a woman. She's like, we're having a really interesting conversation here with Mark Adams. He's the author of a new book, Meet Me in Atlantis. We're going to take some calls here. Um, I've got Bill from Wisconsin. She clicks the button. I think Atlantis is from Finland. Because there's a word in the Finnish language that sounds like Atlantis. And it's the same. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> well, really what I'm learning from this interview is that Mark should be a voice actor. <laughs> That's really what I'm learning right now. Yeah. You might have a second career there. <laughs> Let's hope. Yeah. yeah. I have my, my founding college actually was asking. He's like, do you think I could get a career as like a voice actor, you know, in right. video games? Yeah. I was like, mm, have a plan B, you know? <laughs> Writing. You know, follow your dream, but have a plan B. Yeah. Always, yeah. Always right. have a backup plan. Now, my yeah. backup plan is to be a hand model if uh, this works <laughs> <Yeah. true. laughs> <laughs> Oh, Devin's losing it now. If only you could see the mitts he's, he's oh, showing us. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> all, right. all right, Mark. Well, again, thank you so much. We really do appreciate it. All right, guys. I really appreciate it. If you need anything else, just let me know. All right, thank you so much. We'll be in contact. Yeah. All right, guys, take care. Yeah, you too. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.